Remain standing, if you will, unless your legs are worn out and you can't stand, you don't want to stand, that's fine, I understand that. Um, but if you're able to, um, let's stand and um, read together Romans chapter 15, 16. We just have a few verses this morning that we're going to read, and it's going to be a little bit more topical than usual, um, because I think this topic of how to interpret, how to understand God's Word is so imperative for us as a church and for Christianity overall. So Romans 16, 17 through 20. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such, do not serve our Lord Jesus or our Lord Jesus Christ, or some translations say our Lord Christ, but their own belly, their own appetites, by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I'm glad on your behalf. But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple, almost naive about what is concerning evil. Don't study it. Don't even go there. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. The end of this epistle. You may be seated. Uh, We do have his benediction and the greetings that Paul sends to the Romans, but essentially this is the close of Paul's letter. And he ends it with some very somber words, doesn't he? He ends it with an exhortation, an urging, and he's addressing brothers, and he wants them to note. The Greek word, the verb is scopeo, where we get the word scope. If you have a stethoscope, you can carefully analyze someone's heartbeat. If you have a microscope, you can look intently at all the small details of a cell if you have a telescope, telos is the Greek word for end. You can see the end where the planets are. And so the word scope means to note, to mark out, to carefully. So he's urging Christians to note. And then there's a, a certain class that he describes here. He says, those who cause divisions and offenses... And how can we tell when something is an offense or something that is divisive? And he tells us exactly how we can identify those things. They're things that are contrary to what you have received. And then he tells us who is susceptible to those who bring these divisive and 
destructive doctrines, they can deceive all of us, but in particular those who are a little bit more immature or naive, who are trusting, and because of the power of persuasion of these teachers, they were having an influence on early Christianity. And things have not changed one bit. And in fact, I think today we are more susceptible because there are such a greater opportunity to listen to so many different voices. We have the internet like never before that's flooded with pastors, with Bible teachers, some of very, very good quality, and some of it, frankly, is heretical. But their heresy is masked and it's put in very, very subtly. And you've got to be very, very discerning because a lot of truth and just a little bit of air is a lie. And so Paul, as he's finishing this letter, is very concerned about the believers at Rome. He says, I've written this entire letter to you. This is a long letter. We've got it in chapter and verse. <laughs> but can you imagine sitting down and writing somebody a letter as long as Romans? Ah, boy, I can't. But thank God that Paul did. And he sent it by the deaconess Phoebe to the church at Rome. In other letters, Paul says, Note those who do not obey this epistle... And avoid them. And Paul gives very, very strong words about those who are bringing in these destructive doctrines, these offenses, these divisive teachings. Note them. Scope them out. Look at the details of what they are teaching because it's very subtle. And then avoid them. So this is a, 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 an important teaching for us today. Because I think we have so much publication out there as well. Books, commentaries. Our, our bookshelf back there is stocked with books. And I pulled one off the shelf. A notable teacher that in most areas is very, very trustworthy. But I looked up one verse because I knew that this was a key verse in this man's theology. It was 1 John 2.2. And it simply says, and he, Jesus, is the propitiation. That means Jesus satisfied God's wrath. Jesus is the propitiation. Jesus satisfies the wrath of God. Not for our sins only but also for the sins of the whole world. And that author took two pages to explain why it didn't mean that. Now, I trust this author in many other areas of church doctrine, but we have to be careful. Just because we trust him in one area doesn't mean that they can be trusted in every area. And come back and examine me. I am not inerrant. 
I am not without fault. I have my blind spots. I have changed on some key issues and key doctrinal areas throughout my Christian life that I was resistant to because I had been taught one thing and then when I came, was confronted with Scripture, I had to come to grips, okay, what does the Bible really say? But it was only through sound biblical interpretation and those principles that led me to understand certain things that were biblically correct and were incorrect. And I'm going to go over those today. So rather than picking out false teachers and naming them, I don't like doing that, but I will warn you about one in particular because he's an excellent teacher. But when he gets into salvation, which is such a key and carnal, cardinal doctrine, I think he goes awry. And I, I could be wrong. And I love this teacher in so many other areas. And I was sent a sermon to, to view. And I'll say his name, and many of you probably don't even know who he is, but others of you are listening to him, and I'm just doing this for a warning's sake. His name is Paul Washer. Now, Paul Washer is an excellent teacher. He is a sound Bible expositor in many, many areas. And he's very, very passionate, and he's very persuasive in his preaching and teaching. But I listened to a sermon based on Ezekiel chapter 37. And he applied it to giving the gospel. And he said this in this sermon, that we should not persuade people that that is manipulation. That the Holy Spirit has to regenerate people before they can believe on Jesus. Which is just the opposite. It's backwards from what the Bible teaches. And he took a passage out of context, in my opinion, and I'm a novice compared to Paul Washer. I, I, he's he's a, a great expositor. And so you're saying, well, who are you to criticize this man? Well, I just want to be Bible-based, okay? But Ezekiel chapter 37, the context is Israel. The context, they are in Babylon. The context is that this nation was without any hope in their minds. And so Elijah, I mean Ezekiel, is told to prophesy to dead bones. And he applies this to the lost, that lost people cannot believe anything. They can't understand a thing about God, and you shouldn't try to persuade them. In fact, he said that a sinner's prayer saves nobody. You can't save somebody in five minutes. That, that, that's impossible to do. And I've gone on to listen to this. But this was a message that Ezekiel gave to a nation. It's not about soul winning. It's not about leading a person to Christ. In fact, if you want to go to a verse on leading to Christ, go to Romans chapter 10, where Paul says it's not hard. It's not difficult that somebody can simply confess with their mouth. Somebody can simply believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead, and you shall be saved. The Philippian jailer was told to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And so Israel thought they had no hope. And what was God going to do? He was going to regather the nation. And that's what those bones represented. They didn't represent individuals. They represented the nation of Israel. 
And so it was a message of encouragement. So Paul here is telling us that even believers, all of us, myself, I'm talking to myself this morning. I'm not picking on anybody other than myself because I have been misled. I have been deceived. I've gone down the wrong path. Believers, he's addressing believers that can be deceived. When Paul left the Ephesian elders, he said this, Know that after my departure, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw you away from the truth and savage wolves even among you. So Paul knew the the, the possibility of any of us being led astray. Divisions and offenses. This is a work of the flesh that seeks to be divisive. Now, now most of these false doctrines or false things that are taught, I, I don't think their motives are impure whatsoever. I don't think they're deliberately being divisive. But the ones that we need to be really, really cautious of are those who are bringing divisive things, stumbling blocks, that which, Im- that which impedes our spiritual progress. And when he says, contrary to the doctrine that you've received, what is Paul referring to? He's referring to the 16 chapters that he's just written. And so I think the key doctrine of Romans is the gospel. That's what we need to guard more than anything else, is the gospel. Paul explains in the book of Romans that it is the gospel. It is the power of God. It is what regenerates people. Peter said this, and I quoted it in my prayer, you have been born again, not by corruptible seed, but by incorruptible seed, by the word of God. The word of God has the power to bring life. Jesus said this, my words are spirit and they are life. In the parable of the sower and the seed, what was it that brought forth life? It was the seed. Now, the soil's all different, and that represents the heart of man. But it was the power of the seed of God that brings life. So Paul is defending the gospel. It's the power of God. The gospel teaches that everybody is a sinner. The gospel teaches that everyone is without excuse, Paul says, in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2. The gospel teaches us in Romans chapter 4 that we cannot be justified by anything that we do. And if you add anything to what Jesus did on the cross, it is a false gospel. So when he says, note those, I think he's primarily talking about the doctrine, but he's also, I believe, talking about the apostles' teaching. What they had received was apostolic authority. So let's make sure that our teaching and our preaching is from the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean every Bible teacher can be trusted, because Paul did warn them in Acts chapter 20 that, yes, there will be men that will arise, but this is what we find in the early church. In Acts chapter 2 and 
42, it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That's what they continued steadfastly in. So how do I identify false teachers? The first thing he says is they don't serve the Lord Jesus Christ. So a real, genuine Bible teacher, the first thing that we need to ask, are they a servant at heart? Who are they serving? Are they servants? The word to serve is to be a doulos. It's a bond slave. Are they slaves of Jesus? Do do their lives permeate an attitude of complete submission to Jesus. Now, none of us can do that, obviously, but is there a pattern of total submission to Christ as their as Lord? So these false teachers, they don't serve doulos. They're not slaves of Jesus, but they're slaves of their own appetites. Paul warned the Galatians about these false teachers who came in And their appetite was to draw people after themselves. He says, they zealously court you so that you will be zealous for them. So they were people that were drawing attention to their own desires to build their own reputations. And then thirdly, Paul says, beware of those who just have great oratory skills. Yeah, there's a, a lot of wonderful preachers that are captivating people. I'm not one of them. But there are people out there, and they're, they've got wonderful stories, great illustrations, and they preach dynamically, and all of their syllables are conjugated perfectly. But you know what Paul said? Paul, he says, when I was at Corinth, my speech was contemptible. I was there with you with much fear and trembling, and I didn't use persuasive words with man's wisdom. I used persuasive words with God's wisdom. And the reason Paul did that is so that their faith would not stand in human reasoning, human wisdom, but it would stand in the power of God. So that's some of the ways that we can identify false teachers. But I think the best way is where it says right here, it says, be wise. In in verse 19, therefore, I am glad on your behalf, but we have a contrast. I'm glad because you're being obedient. You've got good doctrine, but I want you to be wise in what is good good. So the best way for us to counter bad doctrine is by knowing correct doctrine. You will never be able to discern what is wrong without knowing what is right. Now, sometimes we just know it intuitively. We hear something, and we just know intuitively because God I think, has put that in every heart, a certain amount of knowledge. He's given everyone a conscience. But when it comes down to Bible doctrine, we won't 
often discern false teaching unless we know what the Bible teaches. So Paul says, be wise what is good and simple toward what is evil. Now, Paul had a passion for young preachers, young men that were going into ministry. And one of those young men was Timothy. And he's constantly warning Timothy about different issues that a pastor is going to face. And so he wrote his last letter before his execution. In the last chapter of this last letter that Paul wrote, he says, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, apostolic doctrine. When Paul wrote something, he says, you received from me, which also I received of the Lord. When Paul writes the letter to the Galatians, he says, this teaching did not come from me. I didn't receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the apostles, they got direct revelation from God. The church was a mystery in the Old Testament. And Paul says, now it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets that there's going to be this new entity. So Paul is telling Timothy, you have followed my doctrine as an apostle, one who got direct revelation from God. There, there's no, people don't do that today, by the way. Okay? You've observed my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, my love, my perseverance, the persecutions and afflictions which have happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, the persecutions I endured. The Lord delivered me out of them all. Yes, all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men, imposters, they will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's what you can expect, Timothy. And then he says... But you, Timothy, you must continue in the things which you have learned from the apostle, from the Bible, not from commentaries, not from sermon audios, not from study help books. Now, all of those things, I'm not downplaying any of those things. They're wonderful tools, but they are written by men. They are not God-breathed. This book is. But you continue in those things, knowing from whom you learned them. And from a childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise into salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So Paul tells Timothy, be wise concerning what is good. So I want to give you five principles this morning on Bible interpretation. We need to be wise concerning what is good. And the, the first one is really just a basic principle that we all need to hear, and that is to be objective. Be objective. Now, none of us are objective, are we? Every one of us has our baggage that we bring with us. I wish I could divorce myself from all of it, but I can't. 
I went to a certain divinity school. I've got a lot of that baggage that I have to sift through. Had a lot of different personal experiences. Experiences are not the same as the Bible, though. So we need to be objective. And how can we do that? We pray for the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our understanding. John 1, 1 John tells us that we have an anointing from the Holy One, that we need not any man teach us, but that same anointing teaches us all things. So if I'm going to be taught, I need to be objective, and I need to ask the Holy Spirit to be my teacher. I shouldn't come to the Bible with a theological system in place and overlaying it over the Bible. I often need to come... I often do this, just being honest. The author often will make his intentions clear to us, and if we are objective, we will see the author's intent rather than what we want to see. Let me give you an example. In Hebrews chapter 8, we have some very, very difficult teaching in chapter 7 about a man named Melchizedek. I'm not going to go into Melchizedek, who he was, but then we get to chapter 8, and if you're, we're confused and saying, what is this all about? We have a statement by the author that helps us. The author says this, Now this is the main point of the things that I am saying. We have such a high priest. Oh, it's like the veil comes off then. This is what this is all about. Chapter 7, this whole story about this Melech king, Sadiq of Shalom, king of peace. Abraham's giving him a tithe and so forth. And that, that even Levi was in Abraham's loins when he gave him the, what is that, the letter, what is that all about? The, the, the inferior is blessed by the greater. And I mean, it's, it's, now this is the main point. This is going to clear things up. Look for the author to give you the, the reason, and objectivity does that. In Romans chapter 9, a very difficult passage, and Paul explains why God's chosen people who had the covenants, who had the glory, who had the promises. Why were they going awry? Why were they missing their own Messiah? And so he concludes it and he tells us why. In fact, he uses that word. They pursued, Israel pursued a law that would hopefully lead to righteousness, but they did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were, by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Second point, each text must be interpreted within its context. This is so crucial. It is probably the most vital, other than being objective and praying for the Holy Spirit to teach you, so I'm kind of listing these in order. We must interpret in context. I don't know who said this, but it was, um, I'm quoting one of my Bible, my, my interpretation. It was called the class of hermeneutics. Hermeneo just comes from the Greek word, which means to interpret. In my hermeneutics class, my professor said this. I remember writing it down. I don't remember if I can. He told who said it, but I don't know. But he says a text without a context easily can become a proof text. So a text is a single verse, and you take it and you isolate it from all the verses around it, the paragraph, the chapter, 
and the book, and you isolate that, it can become a text for proving your point that was not the author's intent. And we need to be careful. I am so guilty of that. Somebody will call me, and I will start searching my Bible just to refute what they said, and I'll find the verse, and then I'll go, hmm. I don't fit because I look at the rest of the context. We all do this. I, I was doing this when I was counseling. It happened to me when I was counseling a man on divorce. He wanted to divorce his wife. And he came to a verse that says, are you loosed from your wife? Don't seek to be remarried. Are you loosed from a wife? General. Well, don't seek a wife. But if you remarry, that doesn't say, I'm sorry. If you marry, you have not sinned. The whole section was on virgins. It was people who never married. And Paul's saying, if you've never married, that's fine. Don't be out looking for a wife. Let God bring it to you. But if you get married, that's okay. And that guy used that little phrase, if you marry, you have not sinned, to excuse his desire, his carnal desire, to get to divorce. And he did. That's proof texting. <laughs> um, so a context is a verse within a paragraph, a paragraph within a section, a section within a book. The Bible clearly teaches us that we are saved by faith alone. I'm just going to give you an example. And I've been guilty of this. I've used this verse myself wrongly, and that's why I use this as an illustration. And... Other well-meaning Bible expositors will go to Matthew 7.22 to teach that your works are not important, but rather simply your profession of faith. Matthew 7.22, it says, Haven't we cast out demons in your name? Haven't we done wonderful works in your name? And he says, Depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. And so some expositors will say, See, it's not our works that matter. It's simply what we confess with our mouth and believe. But that's not what Jesus is driving at, and here's why. All we have to do is to back up one verse earlier, and it says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. So it's not simply what we're saying. It's not about our works either. So where's the happy medium there? Well, the whole context is identifying those who are wolves in sheep's clothing. And so works are important because Jesus said, you will know the wolf by his fruit. But it's not enough just to say, Lord, Lord. And it's not enough to perform. Don't trust in those things. Trust in Jesus alone. Because the whole Sermon on the Mount is about that. He starts out by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know that they can do absolutely nothing to be saved. Blessed are those who come to Christ knowing that they are unworthy sinners and they have to accept his righteousness. That's how the sermon starts. This is in the context of identifying false teachers. So what Jesus is really getting at here is that it is warning us to stay away from a superficial belief in Jesus. It's warning us not to trust in our works. It's warning us that we can only trust Christ 
So that's my second principle. The third principle is interpret the Bible literally. So simple. So we want to be wise toward what is good. Objectivity, context, and a literal interpretation. What do I mean by literal? There's figures of speech, of course. There's hyperbole. There's exaggerations. But those, when taken literally, we understand that they have a figurative meaning, of course. So by literally, I mean, what does the history imply? What does the grammar teach us? And what does the context go along with? So we should always interpret the Bible literally unless we have good reasons not to. One, contextually. It's obviously a figure. Second, logically. We know it can't be talking about something. When Jesus said, if you have the faith of a grain of mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Jesus is not literally talking about rearranging geography. Okay? Um, When we see words such as as a deer or like such and such, we know that that's a figure of speech. Or when we know something is theologically a contradiction. Jesus said, unless you drink my blood, you have no life in you. Now we know, we have to know that that's a theological contradiction. Jesus is not teaching cannibalism nor ingesting his blood. So any doctrine about transubstantiation is incorrect because we know that the Hebrews were told that they were to abstain from anything with blood. In fact, we've got a church council that comes after this in Acts chapter 15, and it says to abstain from blood. And yet they observed the Lord's dinner, the Lord's supper, every single Lord's day. So those are ways that we can understand what is to be literal and what is not. We should always, looking at a literal approach, we should ask ourselves, and none of us are, are without um, our bias, but to the best of our abilities, we should say, what did the original author intend? And what did the original audience intend? understand him to be. Because the Bible can have no other meaning than that. And this is why it's so dangerous. Then Bible interpretation becomes completely subjective. And when Bible interpretation becomes completely objective, it loses all of its meaning. And it loses all of its authority. A biblical passage can only mean what the original author meant and what the audience received. So that's the third principle, interpret literally. And this principle, the fourth principle that I want to give you this morning, I never considered this one. And this one helped me probably more than others because I knew about the others. But it's the fact that the Bible is to be understood with progressive revelation. In other words... There were things in the Old Testament that were incomplete, not fully revealed. They were concealed and then later fully revealed in the New Testament. And progressive revelation recognizes 
that God was dealing differently in different epochs of time. I don't like the word dispensation because it gathers up too many conjures up too many things in your mind. But in the Old Testament, God's primary people was the nation of Israel. And one of the ways that you knew that they were covenant people, because God promised to bless them with physical and material blessings. And we cannot apply that to the New Testament and teach a health, wealth, and prosperity theology based on Jeremiah chapter 29. I know the plans for you, the plans to prosper you and to give you an expected end. That was given to a nation who was under a covenant, a different covenant. That was, now, I'm not saying that there's an applica- not an application to that verse. The application is, yes, God does know the plans for us. Yes, God does have a plan to prosper us, but not with financial or material or health. God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's progressive revelation, okay? Progressive revelation understands also that the Gospels were written in a transitional period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And if you miss that, you can misinterpret so much of the Gospels. In Matthew's Gospel, it says that Jesus came to save his people. I picked up a book, and I kid you not, and the book author said, This is proof that Jesus only wants to save certain people. He came to save his people. That blew my mind. I said, you've got to be kidding me. In the Gospel of Matthew, he is coming for his own nation, his own people. And the author, Matthew, is writing it to Jewish people. And the Jews did not accept their own Messiah. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, don't go to the way of the Gentiles. When a Seraphonician woman comes to him. He says, I'm not called to you. Go away. He says, I'm not going to take the children's bread and give it to dogs. Why? Because he was the Jewish Messiah. He was expecting him. So the Gospels, you've got, we've got to understand progressive revelation. The church doesn't come until later on. To the end of the Gospels and into the book of Acts. Much of the Gospel of John, I think, is misunderstood as well because of this Failure to understand progressive revelation. There were believers in the Old Testament sense in the Gospel of John, and it's written everywhere if we open our eyes and see it. Because Jesus was only disclosing himself to certain people in the Gospel of John. And they were the ones that the Father was giving to him. And who were the ones that God was giving to the Son? It was those who were Old Testament believers because they had believed and accepted Moses' writings. Jesus said this in John chapter 5. He says, you search the scriptures for, and then you think you have eternal life, but they are testifying about me. Your Old Testament saints or your Old Testament lost people, one or the other. And they're talking about me. The Messiah hasn't died on the cross yet. They are still saved by faith 
in what Jesus was going to do. And the Gospels are this intermittent book between old and new. And if we don't understand this principle of progressive revelation, we miss a lot of the profound things that Jesus was doing. He says this, he says, don't think that I came to accuse you to the Father. There's one that accuses you, Moses, in whom you say you're trusting. But if, if you believed Moses, then you would have believed me. So these were unbelievers. They didn't believe Moses. They were paying mouth service to the Old Testament. He said, Jesus said in chapter 8, if you were Abraham's children... You would have loved me. They weren't born again in the sense of the Old Testament regeneration. They weren't believers. They weren't Abraham's children. They were simply ancestral heirs of who Abraham was. And so much of the Gospel of John, I think, is misunderstood. If you had believed Moses, you would have believed me because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe his writings, you won't believe my words. The book of Acts is another transitional book between Old and New Testaments. And we've got to ask ourselves in the book of Acts, is this simply descriptive or is it something prescriptive? In other words, is it describing something that happened or is it prescribing something that we should do? The Holy Spirit hadn't yet fallen. And so you know what they did to find out who the other apostle was? They went out and rolled dice. Is the Bible condoning, you know, playing craps to find out God's will? No, of course not. One of, the, one of the verses I think that's taken from the Old Testament and applied to the New Testament that, is, that makes me cringe is the story of Gideon. Well, I'm going to put out a fleece. That's not how we discern God's will. We discern God's will by his word and prayer and waiting on God. And... If it contradicts the Bible, we know it's not God's will. By the way, Gideon knew God's will. It's not commending what Gideon did. Gideon's lack of faith here. He needs God to reassure him. So the book of Acts is a transitional book. People didn't understand things that they didn't understand. And some things are simply descriptive not prescriptive or things that we're supposed to do today in the book of Acts. I'll give you one more example where this progressive revelation is when Peter is told to go to Cornelius' house. This was a complete new revelation to him. He should have known it because it was concealed in the Old Testament, but now it's fully revealed in the New Testament. And Peter comes to the conclusion that God is not a respecter of persons. But people all over the world who fear God and do those things that are right, God will give them more light and more truth. Now, that, that saves nobody. Cornelius was not saved until he heard the gospel. He had to hear about Jesus. But for Peter to understand that a Gentile could actually come to faith in Jesus, God had to give him some new revelation. And he said, Peter, rise up and eat this stuff. I know you've never done this before. Eat some pork chops. 
have some shrimp cocktail, whatever it was. Go down and have some fried catfish. No way. I'm not going to eat any of that stuff. It's unclean. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. That's the fifth principle. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. When you come to a difficult passage, see if there is a clear passage that better explains it. And don't take an obscure passage and build a teaching on it. I still have no idea, just confession, of what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, well, what will you do for those who are baptized for the dead? That's the only place we read something like that. There's, we're, to, and to take that verse and to try to say, okay, after you die, we can get people from one level of heaven to another level of heaven, or we can get people out of hell up to heaven. That's an obscure verse. It's, it's, it's difficult. None of us, I think one of the ways to understand it is just by the preposition that what will you do for those who have been baptized on account of or because of those dead people that have already died who are believers in Jesus and they passed away and their testimony is what you're believing, why, why are you going to get baptized then if, if, if those, bap, those, those people who are deceased, they're not going to be raised again? That's, that's a possible. Or he uses the, the third person plural. They, they baptize. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, every time Paul uses the third person plural in that chapter, he's talking about they who say there's no resurrection. So it could be that Paul was talking about the false teachers who are doing this. Maybe. I don't know. But that's an obscure passage. When we've got a whole section in Luke chapter 16 that clearly teaches that there is a great gulf that is fixed. That those who have died and have died without Christ cannot move from hell to heaven. When we have a clear teaching in the book of Hebrews that says it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. So let Scripture interpret Scripture, especially in difficult passages. One more example that I'll give you. That's found in Luke chapter 14, verse 26 and 27. Jesus says, unless you hate your father and mother, unless you hate your wife, unless you hate your sons and your daughters, and you hate your own life also, you're not worthy to be my disciple. Now, that is a confusing passage. But one of the things that we know, that the Bible is God's word, and God does not contradict himself, right? We are commanded to love our wives and to lay down ourselves for them. We are commanded to submit and to honor our parents so what does Jesus mean? Well, is there a parallel passage? Let Scripture interpret Scripture. So if you go over to Matthew's Gospel, Jesus uses the exact same phraseology, but Luke is just writing it from a different perspective. And in Matthew's Gospel, he says, if you love father or mother, wife or children, and even your own life more than you love me, then you're not worthy 
be my disciple. Again, he's talking about discipleship here. He's not talking about salvation. He's using the word disciple. In order, a disciple, someone who wants to be progressing in their Christian life, needs to be growing in their love more and more daily for Jesus and less and less for things of this earth. And in comparison with our love and our submission to Christ, everything else should begin to pale in significance. Not that we ever stop loving our wives. Not that we ever stop loving our children. Not that we ever stop loving even ourselves. Because we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that I am to love my wife as I love myself. Now, he's not talking about, you know... This guy who just, you know, who's narcissistic and all he thinks about is, is loving himself because Jesus said that in order to find life, I have to lose life. Okay, I hope I haven't confused everybody thoroughly this morning. <laughs> but let me just quickly go over those five because we need to be wise in what is good. One, principle number one. Let's see if I can remember without looking at my notes. That'd be bad, wouldn't it? So here I'm going to put myself on the test here. Be objective. Come to the Bible without your, your preset of presuppositions of what this text means or your theological system that you're going to lay over. Just be objective and let, let the Holy Spirit be your teacher. Second, context. Always let the context dicta- dictate to you what that means. We have to cheat. <laughs> the third principle, interpret it Literally. What did the author intend? Only take it figuratively if it should be taken figuratively and look for obvious reasons why. Fourth, progressive revelation. Understand that the Bible is written to different people, different time periods, and things are changing. God doesn't change, but the people and the way that he's dealing with people does change. And then lastly, let Scripture interpret Scripture. So application this morning, we all need to be on our guard, every one of us, but especially myself or anybody who's in any teaching role. James warns that teachers are going to be under a stricter judgment. And if we don't offend in what we say, we're a perfect man able to bridle and control the whole body. But every one of us need to be coming to the point where we ought to be teachers. Hebrews chapter 5 says that. So every one of us need to be on guard when we listen to sermon audio. Those things are wonderful tools. When we pick up a Bible study, study book or even a study Bible that's got footnotes in it or theological commentaries, every one of us are vulnerable. So be on our guard. Application number two, make the Bible your primary source of spiritual feeding. Don't make it a devotion book that's got one verse and then a whole paragraph about what this person thinks or feels. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but don't make that your primary source. Bible instruction and your feeding. Don't listen to an audio sermon for 45 minutes or 30 minutes and think you've gotten in your spiritual exercise for that day. In fact, 
do the Bible first, and if you've got time for that, then go to that. And then you'll have discerning eyes and listening ears. So my second application, every one of us, make the Bible our primary source because it alone is the absolute authority on doctrine and life. Don't be taken in by persuasive words or skillful oratory appeals. Number fourth application, the best guard against false doctrine is using those five simple principles for interpreting the Bible. Objectivity, context, literal, systematic, progressive revelation, and let the Bible interpret the Bible. So I hope today, rather than naming different theological movements or naming people, because we'll be here all day, and I have, and I have to be pointing the finger at myself <laughs> too, those principles, I think they will go far to help us to note when we hear something wrong and to avoid it, and to be wise what is good and morally advancing us in our Christian life. Father, Paul waited to the end of this letter, obviously because he wanted them to have all of this teaching. When he was in Ephesus, I'm sorry, when he was in Miletus and he called the, the elders from Ephesians, Ephesus, he, he said, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. God, we need to take serious studying and being students of the word. Peter says this, that we should desire it and crave it just like an infant desires and craves sincere milk of its mother so that it might grow by it. Lord, I pray today that you will give us not just a high view of the Bible, but God, that you will give us a hunger. And God, even when we don't want to pick it up, even when we don't want to read it, God, I pray that we will at that moment crucify our flesh and tell ourselves that I'm dead to what the world wants me to do right now and I want to be alive to what Christ would have me do. Jeremiah said it was the joy and rejoicing of his heart. He said he desired it more than his necessary food. God, I pray that North Valley Bible Church, that we would be people of the book, that we wouldn't need to go running around naming names and calling out false systems, but God, we would simply be objectively coming to your word, reading it within the historical context, letting the author speak for himself, understanding that there were different times and different ways that God revealed himself, as it says in Hebrews 1.1. And letting the Bible be the best explanation for what the Bible means. 
pray this for our church. God, I pray this for myself, Lord.